I'm Carrie Miller, and this Friday you'll hear my new conversation with Mary Frances O'Connor. She uses neuroimaging tools to research grief, and one of her key conclusions is that our brains map our loved ones so that when someone dies, it takes the brain a long time to realize that person is no longer where the brain expected them to be. It is intriguing science. While we wait for that show, I'm bringing you one of my all-time favorite archive conversations with Max Porter and a novel titled Grief is the Thing with Feathers. Echoing Emily Dickinson's poems about grief, Porter tells the story of a young father and his two sons in the months after a devastating loss. Our conversation in the fall of 2016 was wide-ranging and emotional, and I hope you'll find it as compelling as I did. Here's Max Porter. And now in-depth on an individual and distinct grief. People would send me emails. I was in London 10 days ago with a friend, and we encountered the most enthusiastic hand sell of Max Porter's new novel. Now, I'm sure the Waterstones bookstore staff have their favorite recommendations when they appreciate a book, but this was different. Porter's book is a mere 114 pages long in its U.S. publication, and it's rather desolate. It features a grief-stricken father and his boys enduring the despair of a great loss with the help of an imagined but vivid folklorish crow. Sarcastic, sometimes sentimental, caring, and wise. Mr. Porter writes, Friend, excuse, deus ex machine, joke, symptom, figment. This is Max Porter's debut novel. It's titled Grief is the Thing with Feathers. And he joins me today from London. And uh, Max Porter, welcome. It's really good to have you on the show. Hi, Kerry. Thanks for having me. You're uh, you're reminding us of how individual grief is, that, that I think that it doesn't conform to a time and space and framework. Is that is that part of it? Yeah, I think so. I think what I'm trying to say is that it's completely unique and 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 it, you know it's as unique as the human brain and there is no template for thinking about it or for dealing with it and I wanted to try and get inside that and I, and I guess what you were just saying then I guess I couldn't do it with human with humans I needed something else I needed something folkloric and I needed a bird so that's why but hang on a minute I want to ask about this 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 Waterstones bookseller <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't let you leave without it right well that's exactly right I mean and it was everywhere in the book and uh, everywhere in the bookstore and yeah. uh, a staff member who just uh, I'd already had the book but who shoved it at my friend and said you cannot leave the store without this and she didn't oh, brilliant Brilliant. I'm tempted to ask you where it was. I'll take them some biscuits to thank them. <laughs> uh, off air, we'll talk about that. Okay. How about that? Um, do you think that we try to fit the the concept of grief in a in a kind of frame? You know, and and when I say frame, I mean the limitations of you will grieve this long, and this yeah. is kind of the way it will look because the idea of grief is so frightening. Yeah, perhaps. I think we have a kind of industry. You know, right from gift cards to some of the some of the residues of you know the religious way of thinking about things and those rituals that 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 is built around you know notions of moving on, and that, and you know the problem with those sorts of things for me is that they they rely on on a concept of normality that it, it supposes that there is a normal state of being that you have to get back to, and I think that's a really flawed concept because we're all we're all broken you know we're all grieving societies and individuals are all getting over something it's a way of being and it doesn't exclude happiness so i guess i i guess 
I guess I kind of have a. I was writing against the happiness industry. You know, the idea that you that you do your grieving, you receive some cards, some people come knock on your door, and then you're done. You, you know, you're, you're ready to carry on being normal. I think that's a bit. That's kind of preposterous. You know, the the other misconception about that is that there is no before and after, and that what happens in the interim between that before and after is so life changing that the yeah. after is gonna look like we'd expect it to look and, and bear some resemblance to the before. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that I mean, one of the th- I mean, one of the kind of obsessions I have is that that's not just for individuals, that, that your after should be tied to the before in a, in a self-conscious way. You should think about the people that aren't here anymore. You should think about the impact that people who aren't here have had on you. And, the way, and that should affect the way you go about your life now, the parenting or the, the way you make friends, socializing or your work or even your politics. Like, I think it, it, it extends to the, to the political sphere as well. Like, one of the things that most upsets me is the kind of commemoration industry. Mm. So people that get a lot from very publicly, you know, planting their poppy in the field or, or, or mourning the dead and so on and so forth, they don't seem to me to be connecting that to the way they live, i.e. they're not pacifists or they're, you know, they're arms traders or whatever it is. I think that you, if, if, you're, going to, if you're going to mourn those that are, that are not here, you have to apply that to the way you live. Um, so I guess in a way, the, the, one of the things the crow is doing is just is is highlighting some of that, I guess, hi- hypocrisy about some of that. You know, it is interesting to hear you say that about the commemoration industry on the Monday after this country has uh, memorialized the victims of 9-11. Yeah. And I'm sure you saw some of the coverage of that. Yeah. Well, it, you know, I was just listening to the show a minute ago, and it felt like we like it was going to be very weird for us not to immediately start talking about Hillary's pneumonia. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a strange pause in that discussion, which is going to go on and on. But no, I mean, what, what happened, what, what spurred me into that here was that the prime, just today David Cameron has resigned as an MP, having, you know, stepped down as prime minister after the Brexit thing. Mm. But there were these famous, there was an extraordinary piece of art that was done outside the Tower of London a few years ago. I don't know if you saw it. It was a, it was a, a field of Yes, of I did see that. Um, and the, the day that he was, he was photographed kneeling, putting his poppy in the thing. Um, and, you know, then like he goes to a press conference and he doesn't have a poppy on his suit. So they Photoshop one on in case he causes offense by not having one, you know, which is just ludicrous. You know, either you either you are paying your respects genuinely or you're not. You know, it's not a tokenistic thing. But anyway, that evening in London, there was organized one of the, the, the largest gatherings of the global arms trade. And I felt that that was that was what was so grotesque was to was to perform your respects, but actually not 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 give us stuff about the implications of you know, of selling guns in the world today. Um, so I, I guess it's a, it's an authenticity thing as well. It's you know that's what my bird is doing is, is in the book is sort of sniffing out insincerity, and saying it's it's great to allow yourself these feelings, but actually, life is dark. Life is funny. You have to you have to you have to move on at your own speed in your own strange, tangled, organic way. And bitterness and sadness and hypocrisy and all those things are a part of that. Don't tidy it up. It's the tidying up which I think worries me. Yeah, but but you know what you just said about sincerity in the, in the larger political sense also strikes me that it's it's something that the people around you, when you are enveloped in grief, worry about how to be. And I think yeah. some of that is sincerity right how can i how can i genuinely authentically show that i'm 
that I'm feeling along with you, not the yeah. depth of your grief that I'm feeling something too, without it coming off seeming false. Yeah, it's agony, isn't it? Sometimes because you 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 don't know what to say, and you, and, you, and it's almost there's a, there's a competitive element to it, isn't there? It's like I can be the most sympathetic, <laughs> or I can say the thing that's going to really hit home for them and really mean a lot, or you know, or I'm going to be the person that doesn't say anything because I know they need space, and you know, it, it, there's a kind of gamesmanship to it that I think is odd, and I think it's to do with a kind of, uh, yeah, almost this kind of authenticity contest we all have. Um, but, you know, that's the same as, you know, that's the same as any, I was just on talking about Nick Cave's new record mm -hmm. um, on an art show here the other day, and we were saying, that, why is it that people love those love a record like that more because, it's, because they know the story behind it? You know, <laughs> because they know Nick Cave's son died last year. They listen to that record differently. And they get things from it because of their, that what they're seeking is authenticity. And I, and I like that because what we're all looking for in art is, is, is truth, you know. But I also worry about it. I worry about that, that kind of almost voyeuristic thing. You know, so like Ted Hughes, who, you know, plays a big part in this book, people read the Crow poems as confessional poetry related to the death of Sylvia Plath. Right. And there's a kind of weird, nosy... Um, scandal-seeking element to that, which I which I think is somehow um, uh, fraudulent or, or, or possibly a little dangerous. Um, but, but I also recognize it's just a curiosity as old as time, you know, to know what was going on behind a work of art like yeah, that. Yeah, but I, I'm sure you've encountered this too. I mean, this is the thing that novelists in early book tours encounter, which is this idea that it's the novel as biography or as autobiography, right? Yeah. You wrote it because in some way it happened to you, and that's how you access the kind of yeah. emotion to write this, Yeah, which I understand drives novelists crazy. Yeah, I've had this, I had this someone say to me recently in an interview, um, so you don't, apparently you don't want to talk about it, but it's based on the death of your dad. And I said, yeah, yeah it's based on the death of my dad when I was a kid. How did he die? And I went, I don't, I don't know, I really want to talk about it. And she went, yeah, but how? How did he die? <laughs> um, you know, they got to know. But also, there's an anecdote I tell about John Irving that I'm not even sure is John Irving, but it doesn't matter. So say American male novelist. <laughs> and someone came up to him and said, hey, dude, you know, I just read your new book. And it's about a guy called Ron, who is a sports teacher and who has an affair with his wife's best friend. <laughs> And like, I'm called Ron, and I have an affair with my wife's best friend. And John Irving, or whoever, male novelist, says, yeah, it's you. You know, the, you, after a certain point, there's no point disguising the fact that you, you're a novelist, you, you incorporate the details of those around you into your books, full stop, you know. <laughs> um, your book reminded me of a conversation that I'd had with, uh, with a guest who has re written a memoir about having um, lost her young husband. In fact, they got married knowing that he had a brain tumor. Oh, wow. And what happened among her friends and how her friends responded and how uncomfortable that became. And I, I thought I'd play a little bit of that Great. so you could hear it. Let's listen. People would send me emails. One, The subject of one was pay attention to me. And I still think about that because I don't think the person meant to offend me. But I was like, I'm raising a child on my own. I barely brush my teeth. Like, I I can't pay attention to you and now you've made me feel like obligated and like devastated that I'm like leaving you out of something I don't know so she's going through her own thing completely and I think that friendship especially in times like this is taking nothing personally at all because the person that you love is going through something that you can't understand even if you have like been through something similar or you've been through the exact same thing it's going to be so different for them that's Nora Permort and um you know, she understands what the 
what the main character in your novel is yeah. is experiencing, doesn't she? That's absolutely spot on, though. But you know, listening to that, I was almost, I was almost thinking, God, that that could almost be mapped onto onto marriage or anything. <laughs> it's like there are times when you have to let me be this angry or let me be this grumpy or, or or even let me be this irrational and and sit it out you know like there's that there's that thing of that like you see people's true colors at times like you know at times like this and and in a way it gives you a kind of extra sensory like a kind of added clarity and actually you see what you see in a way what you can live without like i can i found for example going through something like this at a certain point in my life i can really do without guilt i really don't like to be made to feel guilty about stuff and i recognize it's some people's first instinct is to just lay a little bit of crap on you and you know so that you know that you're failing them or you've been late or you haven't seen them enough and it's like i actually i don't need that in my life i'm i'm one of those people that likes to 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 please everybody i want everyone to be happy and to like me and to like the situation and thing but guilt's one of those things i've just got a very low tolerance for now how is it that you're a pleaser but you're somebody who will not indulge guilt usually the you know pleasers feel guilty if they're not pleasing yeah. This is not a, not the usual character trait combination here. Well, I guess I'd say I'm, I'm undergoing some kind of transformation. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that you know I, I'm one. Of, you know, so I would lie in bed at night worrying, uh, you know, that, that someone has tried to make me feel guilty. And I thought, you know, my wife would say at three a.m., "Are you really still thinking about that? Like, get over it." You know, some people. Are, you know, people are allowed to be mean to you or people are allowed to not like you, whatever it is. And you don't have to you don't have to go into this. You don't have to like, get into a kind of full 360 degree psychological <laughs> agony over every single one. You're going to have to let things go. So that's what's happening to me at the moment is I'm starting to let things go a bit more. <laughs> and I think writing a book w- was that in a way. It was a part of that. Can I sense that your wife is not a pleaser by nature? No, my my wife's uh, I, I can't think of a, of a cuss free way of describing it. Um, but what my wife does is just is not expend emotional energy on things that she doesn't that aren't that aren't you know she she has a way of putting things in order of importance, mm. um, which is very admirable. But it she's is. also what she also is 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 profoundly and beautifully um, unpretentious. So when I would be keen to sort of um, immediately take the tiniest detail of a social interaction and kind of throw it wider and kind of try and analyse it's like it's it's philosophical or social content, she'd just be like, get over it, they're a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very, very handy to, in, a, in a wife, in a partner. It's also funny that you two were drawn together being the way you each are, isn't it? Yeah, I think mm-hmm. so. But we've been together a long, long time, so it's hard to know what we were like and what we've grown to be like. Huh. Um, we're childhood sweethearts. Wow. Um, so it's really, and also this was a weird thing for her. What was actually incredible about this book was I wrote it, and then I gave it to her, um, and she said, "Oh, I don't know what you're going to do with that. Good luck." <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, it, it seemed it was a weird thing, you know, to read. It was only like twelve pages of, of paper, and she said, I, "You know, I think it's good, but I, I, I don't know if it's publishable." And then when it started to seem like it was going to be published, and people started to say good things about it. I said, oh, you know, people are asking me what you think about it. You know, I've effectively killed you off. People are thinking it's memoir. <laughs> How do you, and she said, I, I literally did not occur to me. I simply didn't occur. Because she read it possibly through the prism of me writing about my dad. But possibly I had, I had moved far enough away from her as a character and, I'd, and I invented this guy well enough that, it didn't, that she didn't think about it. Mm. Which was, in a way, still a year ago, the greatest compliment anyone's ever paid me about the book. We should say then for listeners who have not yet read it that this is a it's a meditation, I guess, of a father with young boys. His wife has died and he's and I'm just going to be simple about this. He's Mm. coping with his grief. And as you say, 
um, the grief takes the form of a folklorish crow. Yeah. Add so, something so, to that because that sounds. So yeah, he, he the, the dad is is obsessed with the poems of Ted Hughes, and he's a scholar. He's he's writing a book about Ted Hughes, and the crow poems, which were the body of work that Ted Hughes wrote, sort of mid career in nineteen seventy. This incredibly nasty kind of anti poetic um, trickster myth, full of very violent imagery, um, and it's an ugly book. Um, and so this guy's obsessed with it. And so on page four, when he meets the crow, he says, oh, good to finally meet you. So it, it's his obsession come alive. Um, but it's also because the crow is such a, a, a symbolic superstar. You know, ever since human beings have told stories about death, they've used crow in, in you know, almost every possible uh, storytelling tradition on earth crows have been involved to tell stories about death and love and pain and so when he appears dad recognizes that it's an inevitability that, that this is his this is his not only his grief but also his whole brain his whole learning his professional life his his taste in poetry his obsession with birds everything has just come alive in the, in this one figure but the important thing i guess to point out is that it's not an imaginary th- friend is not just a figment of the dad's imagination. He also m- literally moves, physically moves into the house and cares for the boys I, as well. I'm so glad you said that because it, it, I think it diminishes the, the power and the space that this crow fills if we, if we make the mistake of thinking it's all in the father's yeah. heads. Yeah. The well, boys you know, experience the crow too. Yeah, absolutely. And he's not just... Um, He's not just a trickster or a symbolic thing. He he he's a babysitter. He uh, what do you call it? What do you call babysitters in the states? Like, babysitters, yeah. Oh, do you? Okay, yeah. babysitters. Um, yeah. So you know, but also he, he's a nanny. He's a psychoanalyst. He's he's um he's a joker. He, he's he's a friend. Ultimately, he becomes the guy's friend. But my editor in at Grey Wolf Press, mm-hmm. um, local to you, yeah, based in the Twin Cities, yeah, who I love. Um, that he, he actually pointed out to me quite early on how important it was that I just put a couple more scenes in where the boys and the crow actually hang out, actually have some time together and some dialogue to, to just make that clearer than it was when I first wrote the book, that, that, that it wasn't just part of dad's brain. And doing that felt so good. It felt so right because I thought then you just open, like, it's like opening the book right out. It's not just a relationship between a man and his grief. And it, this, this bird isn't just a manifestation of, of pain. It, it's a it's a practical domestic thing, and that made that made me feel so good about what more I could write about. Because one of my things is that when people write about grief, they write in these kind of strange, lofty, philosophical, polished sentences. You know, writing about grief is a sort of thing we strain to do better than the person before us. And no one ever writes about the fact you've got to still go to school, you've got to still get, you know, you've got to still go to football practice, you've got to still wash your clothes, you've got to, you know, people, human beings still fart and burp and need need feeding when they're grieving. And the relationship between the crow and the boys allowed me to do that, and that was the thing that felt truest. That was the, that was when I realised I was writing you know the book that only i could write and that i most wanted to write which is that which is the advice you give writers you know (laughs) yeah max the the other thing i want to say about the crow is that and maybe this is this was on the advice of this gray wolf editor but that his language is so rich and playful and and I, i pulled out one sentence that i think kind of demonstrates that that there's a sentence in the crow's point of view that says Clawing, ripping, snipping, slurping, burping, frankly loving the journey of hurting, hurting, hurting. For one thing, that's really delicious to read aloud. But it <laughs> makes that crow, um, 
playful in a way that and accessible in a way that this symbol of grief in a way that I didn't expect that from from a symbol of grief. Oh, that's so nice. I'm so pleased you think that. Uh, the, one of the things is that I'm writing into a tradition, uh, a British, tradi- an Irish tradition, I suppose, of people like Beckett and Joyce, for whom linguistic playfulness is everything. You know, that, that's the stuff I love. And because it was somewhere between poetry and prose, I thought, well, I may as, I, I may as well not deny myself the pleasures of both. I may as well, I may as well have some fun and write some, some, some language that is appropriate to this. You know, we're talking about this sudden trauma, this absolute collapse of time and space that is, that is raw, un, you know, raw, chaotic pain. So I may as well have some raw, chaotic language, you know, I may as well allow myself that. But also, once I got going with the crow in the middle of the book, I wanted it to be bird-like. And I looked at crows for a year really hard and read everything I could read about crows and corvid behaviour. And the way they hop around, the way they are constantly hopping and moving and looking for things and picking things out and then discarding things and then suddenly soaring, it seemed to me just the nicest brief to set myself was could I make the language of the book do that a bit so like what you read then is is my attempt to try and make a crow-like prose style and I could you know uh, and and really you've done it the greatest honor of reading it aloud I think it should be read aloud or it should be read you know it should be read with almost almost musically maybe I should add you know I I had a different excerpt in mind but maybe you have your book with you don't you yeah could I ask you to read something from the crow's point of view? Because I think we ought to hear more of that music. It's pretty foul. You, well, it doesn't I, have to I, be that. What, yeah, I'll, go edit ahead. It, I'll edit it as I go, maybe. <laughs> um, Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just find a little bit that's got... Okay. So this is a little a bit, again, a kind of love letter to, to the English tradition. And, and as you can probably guess from my political chat, it's a tradition, it's a tradition I'm not... Englishness is something I'm not entirely in love with. <laughs> um, crickle, crackle, hop, sniff and tackle, in with the bins, singing the hymns. I lost a wife once, and once is as many times as a crow can lose a wife. Ooh, stab it! Just remembered something. He flew a genuflection, Tintagel, Carlisle, cross Morecambe, Orford, Wonky, poisoning himself with forbidden berries and pretty churches, but England's litter saved him. Ley lines flung him cross-country with no time for grief. Power cables catapulted loose bouquets of tar-black bone and feather, and other crows rained down from the sky. A dead crow storm, a tore-top burnt bird bath, but our crow picked and nibbled at lilt cans and salted durex and B&H, and the firestorm passed over his head as written history over the worker. Blackberry, redcurrant, loganbury, slow, damson, plum pear, crabapple, bruises, clots, phlegm, tumours and quince. He looks in a puddle of oil and sees his beak is brightly coloured, striped red, green, purple and orange like a puffin. He opens his mouth to scream and beautiful English melody comes out. Garden song, like a blackbird or Ivor Bloom and Gurney. This is another one of Crow's bad dreams. Oh, it's such a pleasure to hear you read that. Oh, thanks. Um, of course, you were reading that aloud as you were as you were writing it. I can't imagine it any other way. Oh, you know, it's a weird thing is I wasn't because really? um, I think I listened to um, a lot of reggae and hip hop, and and I suppose I was just the only album I had on my computer when I was re- when I was writing it was. Um, do you know the Mali and blues musician Ali Fakatore? No. Um, so it's like driving African blues. 
with no no I mean, there is singing but i can't understand it because i don't speak the language so it's i was just nodding my head so i think looking back i was i was thinking it aloud but i wasn't necessarily saying it well but then the book then the book got published and um and I had to do a reading. I could I could read you a little bit of the bit I read, but it, it's the, it's very early on when Crow is absolutely full steam ahead in this kind of strange, broken, profane way of speaking. And it it did feel to me very much like a kind of like I had invited this guy on stage at an open mic night, and he had drunk too much <laughs> and was angry, but had also this kind of performative swagger, like he'd read every book in the library and it was all pouring out in a really strange and angry way, but completely for his audience, completely for the dad and the boys. So it was a bit like saying to you know saying to a, a rapper or a writer or someone, come and come and do this private gig, and and tell and, and use all the language and tell us all the truth. Um, and so then when I, when I started, when the book came out and I started to read it in public, I realized how, how fun it was to read aloud. You know, but there's something about the way the consonants and the sound of those words fit together. That's why I'm startled that you weren't reading aloud as you were writing it. I mean, there's the hard sound and the rhythm of the soft sounds, and then the hard sound hits just right again. And I mean, that, that's obviously pretty instinctive. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I do read a lot. I think that's what comes of reading. You know, when I go out and talk to students about their work and I just say read. Reading is everything. The more you read, the better you you, you write. And and every writer is, is, you know, every book written is is the result of the books read. And and so, um, so perhaps it's just from the long, you know, many years spent reading poetry, which I think is, is an incredible medicine for many different reasons. Max Porter is with us if you've tuned into the conversation and we're talking about his novel published here in the U.S. by Grey Wolf. Grief is the thing with feathers and having a conversation about some of the ideas that um, that motivated it, that uh, populate the, the novel. I, I want to be clear that um, and, and I don't want to leave listeners with the wrong impression that this is all about darkness and despair. I mean, you're. You're channeling Emily Dickinson in the title, and mm. she writes about hope along yeah. with grief and death. If, if, you, if you read her poetry, you know that that hope is on the horizon in some yeah. pretty bleak, right, in some pretty bleak moments. What, what would you say about Isn't that? Isn't that just life itself? I mean, Dickinson's the ultimate for me in terms of having got that right, that, that there is this inexplicable darkness, this huge infinite uh, sinkhole of feeling that we that we use language as best as we possibly can to describe and, and and we take ourselves to these unbelievable depths in order to explain um faith and reason and love and fear but also all the time there is ecstasy there is the, there is the light um and, and you can you can be a religious poet or 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 sacrilegious poet it doesn't matter the point is that that is that is a pl- using language setting language to the task of describing this strange thing which is consciousness being alive in the world and i and i felt so important if i was writing a book about something this sad that it had to be funny mm-hmm. that that's my experience um that life is very sad and very funny and i and i remember la- you know i remember laughing at the deathbed of of people I've loved, because funny things happened. You know, I, I do remember that, that, that the human body is a, is an un, is a beautifully comic thing at the most un- inappropriate of moments. Um, and similarly, with with the sentimentality, I wanted to have these moments in the book that are really like lushly sad, because 
You know the tingles you get when you listen to a heartbreaking record, like like the new Nick Cave record, or like、um, the Sufjan Stevens record last year. Like you get a good feeling when you listen to work that is incredibly good about sad things, because you feel it's like that. It's the opposite of the loneliness of being misunderstood. It's the kind of warmth and solidarity of hearing someone talk about it who gets of, of, of feeling like it's being got. You're being got. And that's what I get when I read Emily Dickinson, and I wanted to get, not not compare myself to Emily Dickinson, but I wanted a bit of that in here, that darkness to light. And also,、oh, children are so funny, you know. Children are children. If you try when you've got two, I mean, in this instance, two little children in the house, and you're trying to be miserable, you can't you can't go very long, <laughs> you know. So there's bits in this book where they, you know, they, he's telling them about Picasso, and they say Wankarama, Dad. <laughs> Um, <laughs> or,、um, or you know, they go in and they think he's dead, and it what appears to be quite a sad scene. They're saying, "Dad, are you dead? Are you dead?" And then he just does this long whining fart, and that—that、mm-hmm. you know, of course, they're going to find this funny. Their children to rob them of that would be to a write something unrealistic, and b write something that's not much fun for the reader. You know what you said a minute ago about、um, the laughing at the at the side of somebody who's ill and perhaps terminal.、Yeah. And I was thinking about what you said a moment ago about guilt. That I, I think somebody maybe who has wrestled with and decided to discard a lot of guilt maybe feels freer to feel to experience that blend of grief and and humor and comedy in a way that most of us would probably restrain ourselves with. Maybe maybe you see it more sharply because you don't let that encroaching thing of but I really shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, and also that means yeah I mean yes, and you find allies in life like you find people who will who will giggle with you in the funeral, and you find people that will that will utterly <laughs> disrespect you for giggling and you know strike you off their Christmas card list, and that's that's just life. But I think also I, what I have, which is、um, sometimes socially unhelpful, is like an honesty complex. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just cannot. I cannot not say the terribly、um, gross thing that is in my head. I have to say it. And you know, so like, I'd be at a party, and and the person who's hosting the party would go to the bar. They'd introduce me to their mum and go to the bar, and then two minutes later they would come back with the drinks and be like, "I cannot believe, in the two minutes it's taken me to go to the bar and buy you both a drink, you're already telling my mother your <laughs> testicle story." And it's like, "But my testicle story is so good, I've got to tell it." She loves it, you know. And sure enough, I can tell. You know, you get this sense, don't you? The mum is going to like the testicle story. She's that kind of mum. And sure enough, now I'm better friends with the mum than I was with the person. So, where do you think、yeah. you learned that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we, my brother and me were funny because we 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 were real brothers in a kind of big and growing step step sibling family.、Mm. So we were kind of off in our own world, and we developed our own kind of cheekiness and our own kind of、um, sadness. And I don't know. I guess I guess one of the lessons I learned from my dad and, and also from his mum, my beloved grandmother, was a kind of Welsh、um, "say it as it is" thing.、Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know where I get that from. I, I'm curious since you've since you've referred to your dad's death a couple of times. If you、mm. have a if you have a possession of his that you cherish, because I think one of the things that you're doing in this book is reminding us about the power of the ordinary thing.、Mm. I mean, there, there's a reflection on a hairbrush, just the ordinary、mm. possessions of of the、uh, the mother who's died. Yeah, it's 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 odd, isn't it? Because it's an object world, and I think I, I'm quite sort of I believe in the kind of sacred power of objects. I actually don't have anything of my dad's.、Um, 
I found a towel recently that that had a little name tape with his name on it, and I was curiously moved by that. Um, and I and I, I don't want to sound too kind of uh, uh, romantic about it, mm-hmm. but actually, what I have is my kids and my relationship with my brother. And I, you know, the, the whole kind of the cliche that you would say, oh, you know, I can hear my dad in the, in the, my children's laughter or anything like that. I can't because I don't remember my dad that well. But I certainly, I think m- both my brother and I had children young. Um, as a, in, in a way, as a, as a kind of unfinished business thing. My dad was a really complex man who made some mistakes, but he was a gorgeous dad, a most devoted and brilliant dad. And I think that him dying early left us with the sense that while other people were kind of like, oh, I want to grow up and be rich, or oh, I want to grow up and have a fast car, both me and my brother thought, oh, I want to grow up and have kids so we can go, so I can go back into the woods and make dens, or I, I can I can get back to how fun that was to be under that blanket telling those ghost stories, or whatever it is, you know. That felt to us like the thing to get done, the thing to do. So we actually both had kids quite early. So I sort of, you know, like, there's a cool thing. When I drive out of London, one of the only memories I have of... Um, the day my dad died is that we were driving out of London and I remember the Christmas trees were on this particular building uh, on the M4 out of London. Mm-hmm. And so every time I pass that building now, we all say, I say, hi, dad. And my kids all say, hi, grandpa. <laughs> um, and it's a it's a little thing, like it's a sentimental ritual that that, that is not necessary. It's not teaching them anything, but I, but I like it and it makes me feel good to do it. And it makes me feel like I'm not forgetting and I'm not. I'm not forgetting to, as I said at the beginning, I'm not forgetting to connect how I feel about him with how I feel about them, which is part of not taking it for granted. It's a bit like when cold water comes out of the tap. Every time, I just think that's incredible. And I'm not taking it for granted. So uh, I think I, I don't want to forget and I don't want to move on, you know. Max, we're going to close with some Nick Cave. Oh, good call. And I thank you very much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Oh, it's lovely to chat, Carrie. Thank, thank you. Thank you.